0: In the fall, we officially embarked on a vision that we believe God has given us for our church. It's one that kind of got paused for because of the pandemic three years ago. We've relaunched and made some changes, but the the the, the theme of the. Vision is grace for the city. It's for the next five years, and we're bringing some clarity. We've been praying this whole semester. Lots of people have been praying, and hopefully to bring some clarity what that vision will look like. We'll make some, and I look forward to telling you some of the things we've, like the Lord's corrected and made clear for us for that moving forward in the next couple of months. So, uh, but for that, for that um, I thought it would be appropriate that we kick off the year looking at Jonah, who was a, who was a man who was called to reach a city. And um, he was called to reach Nineveh which was the capital of Assyria. And at that point, uh, the Assyrian uh, empire is on the rise and will eventually conquer God's people. Next will be the Babylonians, but at this point is the Assyrians for Jonah. And um, it's an interesting thing for, for a prophet, why is this a big deal that God would maybe call him to reach a city of Nineveh? Uh, for this reason, one of it, it's a big deal, is that the Assyrian empire was really known as one of the um, cruelest and most violent empires really in, in ancient history. Um, They literally would bash the young of those people that they conquered. Um, They would cut off, uh, tradition says that they would cut off the legs of their enemies, uh, both legs and one arm, and leave one arm in order, uh, as you died, for them to shake your hand and mock you. Uh, They forced friends and family members to parade with decapitated heads of their loved ones on poles. And would force them to do that in mocking them and, and showing their dominance. And they literally were known to burn adolescents alive in front of people. So a pretty, pretty um, cruel empire. And God says to this prophet, one of his, one of his leader, spiritual leaders, to go to Nineveh and to tell them that. Let me look here at uh, Jonah 4.11. This is the last verse of the, four, of the book of Jonah. And uh, the last kind of things, that the last uh, phrase, the last words that, that uh, God says to Jonah, and it says this, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Notice that phrase. He, in the end, he's saying, should I not pity them? Do they not need my grace? Um. Very, very difficult task, you think about it, right? Can you imagine living under the rule of a people that would be doing those type of things and you've seen it happen? And yet God called for you to go preach to them. Now, we're not going to look at it today, um, but most commentators say Jonah knows that if God wanted to bring judgment on a, on a, on a culture or on a city, that he would just do that. And so the, he actually is going to tell them, you even see in our first few verses, that Nineveh, God's aware that they've risen up and are against him or doing bad things. But Jonah also knows that if God's going to show mercy because he's been a prophet, then he'll send a messenger. And he just doesn't like that. And um, maybe to put it in modern-day terms, right, I mean, we, it's a pretty visceral culture right now around politics, right? So imagine yourselves being a, <coughs> a Democrat, and you've got to go hang out with the most far-right Republicans ever and reach them, or if you're a Republican and you feel like you got to go reach out with, and you got to go hang out with the most far left you can think of, right? And if, I mean, there's a lot of contention around that uh, in our culture here, particularly in America today, right? Think about that and then add to it that there actually wasn't just political views and laws being made, but actually these acts of happening were happening. That's the place that Jonah finds himself That would expose some things. That's a lot of pressure, don't you think? And that scenario, command from God, would expose a lot of things in your life. That puts a lot of pressure on you. Shows some cracks, maybe in your views of God, self, and a lot of things. And Jonah has been a prophet to the northern kingdom of God's people, and um, God tells him to go reach this particular city. And so, there's a lot of lessons to learn from know, from Jonah here about what God's teaching in this particular book. There's a lot of themes. There really are. I think when I was looking at it the last two weeks, I wrote down almost 20 themes of uh, Possibly for Jonah. It's a rich, rich, small book of the Bible. Some, some of them are Compassion of the Lord, Nationalism, Racism. Is it really addressed? God pursues good and, and bad people. Self-centered and arrogance. That would be a, could be a theme of that. Uh, the sovereignty of God, trials and sins and storms that come in our lives. Uh, But one we're going to start off with tonight is that I really think is very, very clear, and that is the understanding of the nature of sin, okay? And so as we take four or five weeks here to look at Jonah, the first one I want you to see, one of the things is that what this book really teaches us and shows us is a deeper understanding of the nature of sin. Now, you know, there there are people who say, why do we talk about sin so much in the church? And and I can understand that question, Um, but... uh, For the Christian to really understand the nature of sin is to really, really create incredible power and hope when we see ourselves correctly before God. I think many people miss out on the the real essence and the power of what it means to walk with God. For it to just reach you in a way where you experience God and think of Him, worship Him, want to be with Him, find yourself with Him. It is oftentimes missed because of this doctrine. There's other doctrines, but this doctrine is not rightly understood. And the power for the church to understand that and what God could do in and through us if we understood that. I think it's really revealed, revealed here. And listen, most people think of sin inside and outside the church. They think of sin in this way, just along the idea of who's the good people and the bad people, right? There's good people and there's bad people. And that's what Jonah is. We're the good people, and they're the bad people, and I don't want to go with the bad people, right? But that's really the thinking of that. That's the way we think about it here in the South and pretty much the world. There's the bad people. Maybe you may describe them as, is uh, um, cuss and drink and drunk and do drugs and whatever the things you want to talk about and um, are um, uh, sexually promiscuous. All those things. And there's the good people who obey the rules and do uh, what they're supposed to and. And um, follow all the rules and do the right things. And then, right, I mean, and then the world will shift it, right? I mean, even it doesn't matter what your worldview is, you can, you'll, create your own, uh, you'll create your own rights and wrongs and measure everybody by it, right? Even if you're not a Christian, you'll create a system of right and wrongs and say, I don't like you because you don't obey the system that I ascribe to, right? So that's mostly the way people think about sin, and that's just not the biblical understanding of it. That is not the biblical view of sin, that sin is about good people and bad people doing right and doing wrong. It's incomplete. And so, um, what I hope to do is to understand it. And so what, I think that's one of the things God's doing, what would be an easy way to understand it? Well, if you took someone that you, in your mind, you thought was really, really, really bad, then you probably wouldn't learn a lot about sin because, well, he's a bad person. Of course, that's sinful. But what God does is he takes someone, which this happens now, takes a preacher, a spiritual leader, a rule follower, to teach you and to teach us about the nature of sin. That's the best way to learn. It's not to find a quote-unquote bad person. The way the real doctrine of sin is understood is to take a good person and do it. Now, Sadly enough, most people think their uh, pastors are good people. We could try to take me. That would be a terrible (laughs) example. But thankfully what God does to teach us about sins, he takes the person who you think is good and he puts them up in front of us to help us understand. And one of the ways he does is by calling him to reach a city. All right? So we'll answer this particular day. We'll we're gonna look at some other beautiful doctrines, but we'll look at this one today. And so here's the four questions we'll answer. What does a sin want? How does sin try to get what it wants? Um, why do we sin? And what's the solution? Those are the four questions. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to would you help us to see the nature of what sin is? And would you help us weed through the the moralistic, good people, bad view lens that most of us are prone to have, really all the time. And when God, you help us to see it, see it for what it is and lead us to Christ. I pray you do that today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, first question. What does, what does sin want? All right? Well, look at verse 3, chapter 1 there. and But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into there to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You see the phrase repeated there? It's also repeated in verse 9 of our particular chapter we're looking at today. What sin wants is to be, is to avoid the presence of the Lord. That's what sin wants. Notice there it says he flees. God comes to him in verse 1 and 2, gives him command, and he flees from the presence of the Lord. That's what sin wants. Now you think, well, I thought sin was to be... Uh, really indeed is want to be king of your own life. That's what sin wants. I want to be the king and get my way and do everything. That's true. But the only way you'll conclude that is to be away from the presence of God because if you're in the presence of God, you'll never conclude that. When people are in the presence of God, they really see, I'm not king. You are. So what can, what sin wants is to be away from So you can file that away today if you find yourself struggling. What I want to do is whenever someone's sinning, I'm really freeing the presence of God. Because when I'm in the presence of God, I'm clear about who He is and what I am in my standing and where I am and who I am. But sin wants us to be away from the presence of God. How did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve? Pulled them away from the presence in a sense. God tried to create a wedge between the presence of God. Second second question, how does sin try to get what it wants? All right, so if it wants to be out of the present, so how does it try to do it? And uh, we learned a great lesson. Now, here's one thing to learn. It's important to understand kind of the breakdown of Jonah to understand uh, how sin gets what it, what it wants. First, let me just describe this to you. Uh, Jonah in the four chapters can divide, is kind of just two stories that are really similar, kind of divided. Uh, in half, And so here's how the first story goes. God, in chapters 1 and 2, God comes to, to, to Jonah, gives him a commission, a command. Uh, Jonah doesn't like it. He flees. God deals with him, and he prays. And he has a, actually has a prayer of, uh, a good prayer. All right? Chapter 3, God comes to him again, says, now go to Nineveh. And he goes. And the, in chapter 2, uh, he, actually, and he, he experienced the sailors, the pagans, those that were other, okay, that were not, in his mind, good people. So he does that in the first three chapters. Then, in the second chapter, God tells him to go. This time he goes. He experiences lost people or people that aren't in his mind good, and um, God works through him, and he encounters God again. And he prays to him. This time his prayer is angry. That's the pattern, all right. Pray, encounter, encounter the bad people. God deals with him. He has a good prayer. Goes back out. God sends him back out. He sees the command of God, encounters the bad people. God works. He has a prayer and talks to God, and this time he's mad. All right? So, how does does sin try to get what it wants? Well, the first. Literally running. All right, we just run from the presence. If I, want the, if I want to be out of the presence of God, one of the ways we do it, we just run as far away from him as we can. right? So notice in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee, so he took off, and he went down to Tarshish. Now, at this point, where he is on the map, Nineveh is to the east and to the northeast. All right, That's where he'd have to go, about a three or four day journey. Guess where he goes, west. You try to look up Tarshish, he went down to Joppa, it's like west on the west, way over almost off the Mediterranean Sea. He was going as far as he possibly could, running from God. He knew it. So one of the ways that you get away from the presence of God is you take off running. And listen, everyone is running from something. Everyone's running. They may not know it, but they're running. Um, One of our favorite movies is uh, Sweet Home Alabama you know that one, with Reese Witherspoon, which the name in Alabama, that's why we're endeared to it. But what's her story? Reese Witherspoon, if you've ever seen the movie, right? She's from small podunk Alabama, a country girl, and she winds up in New York City as a great designer of clothes. And she has to go back and face, she wasn't gonna marry the mayor's husband, and she has to go back and face her old life, that life in Alabama, that poor double wide trailer. Southern small town that she's been running from, she has to go back and face it, right? She's running from something. That's a pretty common story in movies, right? Is it not? We've been picking on Hallmark at Christmas, right? That's the Hallmark story. I mean, everybody's going back to their hometown to face something they were running from. That's what everybody's doing. Why is that? Why is that such a common thing? Because that's the story of man. We're always running from something. Whether you know it, listen. I'm in Kentucky. I'm kidding. I wasn't running from anything down there, but nothing that dark or anything like that. But you see, right? I'm 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 in Kentucky. I'm from Alabama. I'm kidding. But we're running. That's not what I'm running from. Um, But we're all running from something. Everyone's running. Our children mess up or, or don't like the things they live under in their home. Well, they do. They run. They rebel. They're running. And by the way, if you're a Christian, we're all running from the garden. We're all running from our home. Because this is what? To go back to the garden or to go back to being in the presence of God means all of a sudden I need a covering and I've got to deal with a God who sees me for who I am. And I'm not king. And there's a lot of things I haven't dealt with. And I've got to be in his presence. I mean, we run. That's what we do. That's one way sin tries to get what it wants out of the presence of God. But then the other way, the sin tries to get what it wants, is by the rules. One way is running, but the other way is by obeying the rules. Actually, people run from God by obeying what he says to do. Now, that sounds weird, right? So I thought that's what we were supposed to do, obey. But I forget the theologian. I should looked it up. There's a famous theologian that says people try to avoid Jesus in all kinds of ways by running and by obedience so I don't have to deal. Now, now here's, let me see what, let me show what I mean. So, look in verse chapter three. Remember, I told you, recommission. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, and according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey. So, Jonah began to go to the city, and on the day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days. So, he does what God tells him to do. You see that there? Right? So, okay, he's dead. This time he's doing what he's supposed to do. But how in the world do we know he's hiding still? How can he be hiding behind his obedience? Well, the prayers that he prays. Actually, give us insight to that. Look here. Let's compare the prayers in Jonah two two, which we didn't read this morning. But finally, he's in the he's been in the belly of a, of, a, of a fish in a storm and God had saved him, preserved him through that. And so he prays in Jonah 2 too. Look at a couple, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. The whole chapter is his prayer. But look, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of, a, of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. But I was with the voice of thanksgiving, and sacri- but I, in verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he's thankful that the Lord rescued him when he was thrown overboard. You see that? look at the second prayer in Jonah 4. After he had gone and preached to the Ninevites and the king had repented and lots of people were believing in Jesus. Not in Jesus yet, but in God. Jonah's anger in verse 4, he says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. I knew that you were kingdom and watching you be gracious there when they don't deserve it. I knew you'd be gracious. That's why you sent me. And he's mad, right? What's the similarity between the two prayers? Well, guess what? When he fell off the boat, he got, he wanted something. I need somebody to save me. And he got what he wanted. So he praised God. This time he went to Nineveh and he got gracious to him and he was mad. You know what there was going on in his heart? He only loved God when he got what he wanted. That's sin. That's not a relationship with him. I, uh, when I'm getting what I want, I love you. When I'm not getting what I want, I don't love you. I, uh, one of the things I've historically tried to do with my children I'm don't know. i putting myself out there. I'm not sure if this is right or wrong. I think it is. We've tried to regularly, when they're in conflict with each other or with them, try to make them admit when they're wrong. Just to look at the other and say, listen, I was wrong. I was wrong. And when they're, you know, they're in arguments. Kids argue, right? If one's right one's wrong, just the other one that's wrong says, I was wrong. Or I was wrong to do this. Just admit it, right? And um, I think it's great humility to have to say, I was wrong, right? But you know what my kids have figured out? Things say, if I just say I was wrong, this thing will be over and I'll move on. You see that, right? You ever done that one? That's what they do. You don't ever do that at work or your place of job or with your, you never just say or do what you're supposed to avoid something else, right? But that's what they do. What are they doing? They're obeying in order to hide what's wrong underneath. You see that? There's like, if I say what I'm supposed to do here, then I'll never have to deal with it. But it'll come out because then I'll say, hey, what's, do you mean that? No, (laughs) I'm still mad, right? So you've just said something that you want. Their anger will come out somewhere else. That's what we do. When we want to leave free the way central, right? That's the younger brother. Or we try obeying God, elder brother, the whole time avoiding the relationship and the real issues and the love of God. So let me just pause there and just for application, what thing from your past, even today or small or big, pain, sin, suffering, loss, are you just right now just trying to obey God in order to avoid being in his presence about something difficult. What relationships are you avoiding something difficult? Sometimes it may have, Now, to address those, we hide behind obedience to avoid God himself. Because then he'll deal with us where we are. So that's, um, that's what sin tries to do. So why do we sin? What's the real reason behind it? And this is the real truth of the doctrine that's really important for us. Why do we sin? The first, there's two answers. I'll give you two. The two answers, why do we sin, is one, first and foremost, is that we doubt the goodness of God. That's what the heart of sin is, is to doubt what God, that he's good. We just doubt his goodness. So think about it. God comes with a command. Jonah doesn't like it. He's supposed to be a good guy. He's been obeying the commands. God gives the command. He doesn't like it. In that moment, he concludes, based upon his own knowledge and his own wants, therefore God must not be good. Because if he was good, I'd follow him. That's what we do in our lives every day. When you begin to struggle, in that moment, whatever it is in your life, whether uh, you're running or uh, whatever it may be, our conclusion from the outset whenever we sin is that God isn't good. That is ingrained in us. That is the fall of Genesis 1. That's what the serpent did to Adam and Eve. Maybe God's withholding from you. He's something. He's, he's not good because he's got a, a tree that he's holding back from you. Maybe he's not as good as you think he is. That's lack of faith. That's at the core of all sins. That's the doctrine of sin. And good people and bad people, runners and obeyers, in their hearts, lose sight that God is good. Then secondly, what's the second thing? Is it why we sin? The first one is we lose sight of the goodness of God. And then secondly, we attach ourselves to something other than God for hope and identity. So then we... Think God is good, and we run from him, or we don't attach to him, and then we attach to something else for our hope and our identity. Notice here, um, what was that thing that most theologians think that that Jonah was attached to? Look at verse 8 and 9. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And this is the sailors talking to him. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. All right, so here's the thing. No first words out of his mouth is not, I'm a sinner of God or his presence is that. He's been, he's been quiet up to this point, by the way. The first time they came to him, and he's asleep, and he's not even listening. But finally, they cast lots, and something's going to happen, and he speaks. The first words out of his mouth, or he says, I'm a Hebrew. His greatest identity was that he was a Hebrew. He says this about himself before he says anything. the lots were cast. Here's what Tim Keller says about this. Uh, While Jonah had faith in God, it doesn't seem to be as deep or fundamental to his identity as his nationality is. His race or his nationality was more fundamental to who he was than who, who he was in relation to God. And if his nationality is, then guess what? My race is better than your race. And why would God? And God's been gracious to us Because somehow in his mind, he thought that his race was better. That's why God was gracious to him. That's not really the case. The Hebrews were sinners. Actually, he's been seeing them that. The rest of the world, God just picked a group according to his grace to say, they're sinners and I love them. Why? Because not they're good. That's him. But he stands as if his race and his nationality is his identity. And therefore, he hates the Ninevites. And he hates everyone else. His identity is somewhere other than being a child of the Most High King. I get it. I know how he could get there. If you study it in 2 Kings 14, he had been a prophet to the northern kingdom, and um, they don't repent. They're not listening. There were two kings that he was ruling over, the king and the son, that he he was prophesying to and telling them to repent. The northern kingdom is going crazy. They don't even speak of God. There's no good kings, and yet God is compassionate and keeps giving them land back. And he's like, what, they're not responding. Imagine your job is to get people to respond to God, and they don't. Guess what that'll do in you? That'll make you bitter and mad. But at the same time, the Assyrians are attacking the people he's speaking to. And he's just eat up with confusion and identity crisis. And when you keep trying to do something and you're not good at it, you'll be mad. Eh. Have an identity crisis now we 'll get into this later, but he he was a racist bigot that 's what he was and by the way i don 't know if you think of Jonah and you think I would have hired this guy he 's really immature prophet so just so you know i 'm not putting myself above Jonah, but I want you to see that God is taking someone who 's good. In the eyes of people, surely he's a good guy. He obeys all the rules. And his heart is just as wretched. And so, what is sin? Sin, sin, sin that at its core, says God is not good and attaches to something other than God for your hope and identity. And his hope was in his race and his nationality and not God himself. And he concluded that he was better. What is your identity? Is it that you follow the rules? If that's your identity, then you'll look down on everybody who doesn't follow the rules. What's your identity? That you've run as far away from God as you can? You're like, I don't even deal with those dumb Christians anymore because they're not even smart and they don't even believe science and whatever. If that's your identity, you've attached to something. What is your identity? Is it that you're financially successful? Is it that you're, finan- that you're what is it? Your status in your church, your relationships, your money, your re- if anything other than God, we will attach ourselves to good and bad things. It wasn't wrong to be a Hebrew. And to care for the Hebrews was a good thing. But is it your identity? It's not wrong to be a Democrat or a Republican. But is that your identity? Have you lost sight of the goodness of God? So that's the heart of sin. The doctrine of sin is that There are no good people. <laughs> For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Who's more sinful, the older brother or the younger brother who runs away or the older brother who's a Pharisee and looks down on everybody else? Actually, I'm more concerned about the older brother people, to be honest. Those who are morally good among the church... And yet they look down on everyone outside of them. That was Jonah. And God would say to him, Can I not have pity on Nineveh? I've had pity on you. You need it just as much as he did. So what's the solution? And we're coming to a table that will remind us of the solution. But in the end... How do we come to the presence of God? If sin wants to be out of the presence of God, and we'll either run from the presence of God to just being before him, either by running as far as we can or obeying his rules to not have to deal with who we are before him and our desperate need of him, that he's a king and that we're not, and that he's holy and we're not, we'll try to get it from the presence. What's the solution? How do we get to that presence and sit there and be okay with that? How do we come to it? It really, some of it's in his name. This is beautiful. The name of Jonah, and verse one, was the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Amittai was his name. You know what Joseph's name, that name means, that whole phrase there? It means Joseph. Jonah was a dove. The word Jonah means dove, and from, from, uh, from his name, from Amittai, it means this that God was faithful. It was a symbol. The dove was a symbol of Israel, a silly and senseless. And if Jonah was to be true to his name, the son of Amittai means son. So the second part of his name means the son of my faithfulness. So he's a dove, but he's a son of my faithfulness. Now, that dove language there is from Hosea, which Hosea calls Ephraim or God's people, calls them a dove. Why is that? Because most think because when God's people and the prophets were speaking to him, sometimes they gave their alliance to Egypt and sometimes they gave their alliance to the Syrians and they oscillated back and forth instead of turning to God. And that's what Jonah's name is. He's just like that dove. He's over here and he's like, well, I'll run from him. Well, he goes over here and he's like, well, I'm going to obey you and do it. And he's isolating. And you know what God said his name is? I'll say it again. His name is Zammittah means this, son of my faithfulness. The solution is not found within you. How do you come into the presence of God? By his faithfulness alone. That he's a God who chases That he's a God who brings us into it. And the only way for the first time, if you've never come into the presence for the first time, the only way you ever get into the presence of God and encounter his grace and mercy is by him being faithful to bring you into it. Look at verse 1. And then now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He keeps coming to Jonah. He's a dove. He's an oscillating dove. He's a knucklehead. He's an arrogant bigot. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly. So when he gets thrown overboard, God's still there rescuing him. And then in verse 3, Jonah 3, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He keeps coming to him. We didn't look at the whole chapters. He keeps talking, dialoguing with him. He keeps coming after him. In verse 4, 6, now the Lord appointed a plant. So after he had his ramp and just mad and had his prayer about, I don't know why you're saving them. I knew you would do that. He sits down out in the desert, and the Lord appointed a plant to made it to cover him up that he might have shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. (laughs) The solution's not us. The solution is God's grace and mercy that he pursues us. Now, if you're a Christian, I would just say stop running and stop obeying, if you will, and sit, come to him, and let him Be faithful to you and love you. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And we'll look at that. I know people are like, are you really going to fish? Don't worry about that today. Jonah was in the belly of fish for three days and three nights. Listen, in your storms and in your sins, there is a far greater fish. One who died in three days days, our solution is Christ, who saves good people and bad people, because really, everybody's bad, and he's faithful to us, and the prodigal son, how did Jesus, was Jesus not, was the father not good? He looked to his son in his anger, and he says, son, do I not love you? Have I not given you everything? The father was gracious to the good guy and the bad guy. Why? Because we all are really bad than a plant. He covers us. Let's pray. Father, would you um would you give us a better understanding of of our sin and would we would you help us to stop following the rules just for the rule's sake but would you let us become a people who really conclude that there is none good and that we admit that we're scared to be in your presence but when we come into your presence, that is the greatest place to be because we're surprised. It's actually a relief to come to you and realize we're not king. It's miserable to be king. We can't h- handle it. And it's actually a relief to come to you and, and, and expose our anger and our things that we hide and to bring our, as we sang earlier, our addictions and our struggles and our, all of our things that we're running from to just bring them to him and let you meet us and cover us in the shade of your grace the way you covered Jonah that's the only place that our hearts are glad would you help us to sing to that would you help us to take communion according to that would us having an understanding of the doctrine of sin not being do's and don'ts but what we believe and attach ourselves to that it's idolatry in the the forsaking and the disbelief of who you are. Would you help us, God, to see that better and remind us of your kindness to us in Christ, whose name we pray, amen.